You're listening to a live recorded teaching from the Sunday Gathering at the Heights Church in Denver, Colorado. We hope that this teaching is an encouragement to you. To find out more about the Heights Church, visit theheightsdenver.com. to you. Really excited to gather together and open God's Word. Before we get there, uh, I introduced this last week, but I want to talk about a good problem that we are going to solve together, and that is that we are running out of space right here in the auditorium and down in kids, so we need to create more space. Now, I like to name this because some people miss this, but this is a good problem, not a bad problem, uh, because Jesus has promised, just think about this, to build his church, not shrink his church, okay? Can I get an amen on that? Jesus has promised to build his church, not shrink his church. And so, man, the fact that we're running out of space and so many of you are new, uh, this is evidence that Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the dead, and uh, he is delivering on his promises right here in downtown Denver in 2023, which is really cool. Uh, So we need to create more space. So here's what we're going to do. Two weeks from today, on March the 5th, we are multiplying from one gathering at 10 a.m. to two gatherings at 9 and 1045 a.m. So two weeks from today, if you show up here at 10 a.m., you will either be late or early. Uh, And so uh, we'll just be like, hey, why don't you grab a cup of coffee? Have a nice seat right down here, and we'll see you at 1045. Uh, So that's two weeks from today. And here's the thing, guys. We need everyone's help in the room to do this well. We need everyone's help to do this well. We cannot do this uh, without you. So when you came in, uh, there was a little card uh, on your armrest that says, uh, we are moving to two gatherings. If you would grab that for me and wave it in the air like you just don't care. And if you're too cool to wave it in the air right now, I don't even have time for you. I don't even have time for you, okay? Uh, and so grab that card. Uh, there's a little bit more information about why we're moving to two gatherings. And then on the back side of that, this is, this is for you and for us, okay? This is for you and for us. I need every single one of you, if you are breathing oxygen in the room, to fill this out before the service is over today, okay? There's three big asks that we're asking everybody to do uh, as we move toward multiplying to two services. Invite a friend, join a serve team, choose a service. Last week, I introduced these. This week is your time to take a step on one of these, or on all, all, all of these, excuse me. So on the card, uh, the first thing you can see is invite a friend right there. The whole reason we are doing this is to create more space for our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers who don't belong to belong to explore life with Jesus, uh, to, to discover Jesus, to, be deci- to become a deeper disciple of Jesus. And so on that first little slot, you'll see that there's a tear-off thing, and we want you to put the name of a friend that's close to you but far from God, that you can start to pray for and eventually invite into life with Jesus and life with Jesus' family, the local church. So put a, put a friend's name there, close to you but far from God. Tape that to your mirror where you brush your teeth in the morning. Get a little toothpaste on it while you go hard brush your teeth and pray for that person. Okay, uh, or you can put it on your dash. Put it, just put it somewhere where it's, uh, you're going to remember to pray for that person. Second is join a serve team. We need everybody that considers the Heights home on a Sunday morning serve team. All of you, all of you. And so right here, you can see that all of those teams that Meg just did a great job describing are right there with a little description. If you currently serve on a serve team, here's what I need you to do. Go ahead and check the team you are on. Uh, that way it's going to let our director know that you are committed to that area. If you are not on a serve team, you need to know this. To make this transition well, we need about 90 new people on serve teams over the next couple of months. So we need you. Uh, we need you. So go ahead and check that um, and put your name and email there. And then finally is choose a service. Uh, this doesn't lock you into anything. It just helps us plan, kind of understand if you were to choose a service, which one would you go to so that we can create space in both of our services two weeks from today. So here's what I need you to do. I need you to fill that out sometime while I'm talking. If, I, if, if a little boring moment happens and you kind of tune out of my sermon, you can go ahead and fill that out re-engage here in a little bit. And then as you leave today, there's going to be people uh, with baskets begging for your card, making you feel awkward if you don't put a card in the basket. Uh, So just know you are warned. You are warned. Uh, And uh, if you consider the Heights home, here's the thing. We need your participation. We need your participation to do this well and continue to advance the redemptive mission of Jesus here in the city. Cool? All right. All right. Fill out the card. Drop it in the basket as you, as you leave. They will, the people will be at the exits. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we will uh, dive into our Bible teaching. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you. Uh, thank you that we are living in your promises, that you've promised that you will build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What a gift. What a promise that we're seeing people come to faith. We just saw four people baptized last Sunday, got to celebrate 
new people coming to faith, that we're seeing people grow deeper in their discipleship. And God, I just want to pray Psalm chapter 90 that you would bless the work of our hands upon us. Yes, Lord, bless the work of our hands. As we labor for the kingdom and as we all play our part in this body, in this local body of Christ, we pray that you would bless us and keep us and that your face would shine on us. Uh, Now, Lord, as we open up your word, um, we pray that you would prepare our hearts, that you would uh, give us receptive hearts that are ready to receive your word but not only receive your word, but obey your word for our joy. And so come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, without you, we cannot receive the word and we cannot obey the word. So come Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, we've been moving through Acts chapter 2, and today, congratulations, you are here for Money Day. Uh, and before you look for the exits, just hang with me a little bit, okay? Um, it is money day, and there's one big idea I want to show you out of Acts chapter 2 uh, today as we journey through this teaching. Here it is. The big idea of today is there is an inseparable connection between our discipleship to Jesus and how we manage our money, how we manage our cold, hard cash. There's an inseparable connection between our discipleship to Jesus and our Venmo, our Chase Sapphire Reserve credit card our venture card, our E-Trade accounts, these things are inseparably connected. Jesus is not a killjoy, but he is in fact for your joy. Uh, And he wants to teach us how to relate well to all things in life. And newsflash, life includes money. Life includes money. Some of you have already been to the coffee shop and gotten your, you know, I don't know, if you're cool, you know, you've been to LuLaRoe's. If you're not cool like me, you've already been to Starbucks to get your, you know, your light roast with half and half, you know? Um, but we, money is a thing. Like, we're always spending it, always using it. It's, it's core to life. Now, what I want to do is I want to start this teaching out in a little bit of a unique way because I feel like we need to uh, clear the slate a little bit so we can have a clear runway to engage all of the things that uh, the scriptures are going to teach us on money this morning. Because here's what I know. When somebody like me uh, with, like, uh, TV up here and big screens and uh, a pop star mic, sometimes I wonder, like, Am I more like Garth Brooks or Britney Spears? I don't know. Um, when somebody like me with like a pop star mic uh, gets up here and they start talking about money, it's really easy for like defenses to go up. And you're like, man, and if it's your first time, you're like, what in the world? First Sunday, couldn't we have done something a little bit easier, you know? It's easy for defenses to go up and you can start to think a thousand things. You're like, okay, here comes the guilt trip on money. Here it comes, you know, the church is probably in financial trouble. Uh, Corbin wants a raise, you know, Corbin wants a raise. So we're, you know, we're talking about money. Uh, you know, they're priming the pump for some sort of like big capital fundraising initiative in the fall. Uh, so here comes the teaching on money. And I just want to clear the slate really quickly. And you need to know this, like I'm doing fine. Uh, the church is not in financial trouble. Uh, and there is no big like bait and switch initiative in the fall that we're going into. Like this is, I'm not coming in with any sort of ulterior motives in talking to you about money today. And I feel like I need, just need to uh, clear this light. In fact, many of you that consider the Heights home are incredibly generous with our church. And so I want to start out this teaching going, man, thank you. Like if you're financially generous with our church, thank you so much. This is not a guilt trip. There is no alternative motive, like hidden thing that I'm trying to get something from you. Really, the reason we are talking about money is because Jesus was himself quite literally always talking about money. He was always, always, always making the connection between our discipleship and our bank accounts. Uh, I want to show you a few stats. If we were to do an overview of all of teaching, uh, Jesus's teachings on money, you would see this. Uh, Jesus's teaching on money is second in frequency only to his teaching on the kingdom of God. And so it's like Jesus would teach on the kingdom of God, then he would teach on money, then there's like a massive gap between number two and three. He's like always talking about it. He He talks about and teaches on money three times more than he taught on love. So you're like, Jesus is all about love. It's like, well, yeah, love and money, you know, (laughs) there's something there. You know, he taught on, he taught on money seven times more than he taught on prayer. This is true. Seven times more than he taught on prayer. Um, 17 of his 39 parables, that's almost half are about money and possessions. Almost half of the little stories that Jesus tells in the gospels are about money and possessions. And depending on how you calculate it, 15 to 25% of Jesus's teachings have to do with money, possessions, greed, or generosity. So if I need to do anything to you, uh, to you, as I come to you to teach on money, it's probably apologize to you because I have not taught on this enough. 
I've not taught on this enough. Like when I, this was really convicting to me as a Bible teacher and as one of the leaders of this church. And I look at these stats and I'm like, my goodness, how, almost half of Jesus' teaching was on money. And you're probably thinking, are, is half of your teaching going to be on money now? And it's like, well, no, but today's like the first, today's the first day we're going to try to correct that in the life of our church. And I just think it's fascinating. One of, the, one of the things as I looked at these stats, one of the fascinating things about this is I think that there's a reason there is a reason why, like, Jesus, simultaneously these two things are true. Jesus is always talking about money, and when we start to talk about money, our defenses start to go up. It's like these things are, like, really related. Jesus and money. Jesus is always talking about money. Now, it's because Jesus taught and talked about money so much that one of the core markers of the church's life together in the book of Acts and throughout church history has been financial generosity. So if you're new with us, if today's your first day, you're like, how did I choose money day of all days? What we've been doing is we've been spending the last seven or eight weeks working through Acts chapter two, looking at the core practices of the very first church. And we've been making this claim, if we want the power of the New Testament church, we must devote ourselves to the practices of the New Testament church. And practice number six that we find in Acts chapter two is financial generosity. So let's get our eyes in the New Testament. Let's start looking at the scriptures together. Let's look at Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 45. It says this, they devoted themselves. So this is, these are the very first Christians. They just had an experience of Jesus Christ. They, they go, man, we want to follow Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit falls. And here's what the very first church devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to, and we've done a week on each of these, the apostles teaching. This is the teaching of the scriptures. To the fellowship, this is life together. To the breaking of bread, this is communion, which keeps the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus at the center of their life. Like, the church is not, this one's really important because the church is not just a social club. It's a Jesus community. It's a cross-shaped community. It's a resurrection of community, which is what the breaking of bread is all about. And to prayer. So we did a whole Sunday on prayer and seeking God and the power of God. Last Sunday, we talked about the, the nature of miracles and signs and wonders and believing for healing because it says this, everyone in the first church was filled with awe. We go, man, what do you expect when you come to the gathering of the church? Oh, yeah, it was fine. Teaching was a little boring and got a couple nuggets. Or you're like, man, I want to be filled with awe. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. And here, here's where our text today starts. Now, all the believers were together and held all things in common. And here's the key line. They sold their possessions and property. So notice this. I'm going to talk about this later, but they weren't just giving out of their excess. They were going, oh, there's a need over there? Okay, I'm going to sell my camel. I don't know. <laughs> and I'm going to meet that need. And they distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, what I want you to see here is that the people in the very first church held their money and their possessions very loosely. They did not have a tight grip on their money and possessions, or should I say their money and possessions did not have a tight grip on them. Loosely enough that when they saw a need, they were ready to sell possessions and property to meet those needs. And this was radically countercultural for the day. They, these people had an experience of the grace of Jesus, and it began to change the way they managed their money. And the church, they, they were so committed to financial generosity that the church communities, this started to become like the reputation of the early church that, oh yeah, those are the Christians, those are the financially generous people. Tim Keller says this about the early church. I love this quote. He says, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body and they gave practically everybody their money. And you're like, oh, so they're sexually countercultural. We'll get to that in 1 Corinthians here in, a, here, here in a couple months. But they're also financially countercultural. They manage their money, money differently than the culture around them. Radical, sacrificial Financial generosity marked the very first church. These people had encountered the radical generosity of God toward them in Jesus Christ. That God did not hold anything back from them, but gave them his everything through giving, their son, uh, the giving of his son, Jesus Christ. 
And this experience of God's grace changed the way they managed their money. And here's what we see in this, very simply. An experience of Jesus's grace should change our life to the point that it affects our financial decision-making. It should. This is all over the New Testament. Martin Luther, writing in the 1500s, famously said this, uh, there are three conversions necessary, the conversion of the heart, the mind, and the purse. Of these three, it may well be, it may well be that we moderns find the conversion of the purse most difficult. That this is the conversion that most people find so difficult. Now, I know what some of you guys are thinking. Well, good thing I don't carry a purse, you know? And, uh, well, today is about the, you're, you're welcome for that joke. Yeah, you like that? Um, and, uh, you know, you know here, here's the thing. Today is about the conversion of the purse. It's about this, in words of Martin Luther, the, the third conversion that we must experience. We must not only give intellectual assent and heart love to Jesus Christ, but throughout the, throughout the history of the people of God, an experience of God's grace has always affected the way the people of God have managed their money. This was true in Abraham, Abraham's day. Abraham is called by God, and you see him giving a tithe to Melchizedek. This was true of the people in the book of Exodus. They were delivered uh, through the Red Sea, and all of a sudden, what are they doing? They're all contributing so that they can build the tabernacle, and you, you see financial generosity. You see this in the, day of, the days of Nehemiah, that the people were financially generous to, to rebuild the broken-down uh, city of God. You see this in Jesus' teaching, and you see this right here in the book of Acts and all throughout church history, that an experience of God's grace leads to the conversion of the purse. So today is about, however you want to say it, Jesus and Venmo. Jesus and your Chase Sapphire reserve card. Jesus and your, your venture card. Jesus and your E-Trade account. Jesus and your, your Charles Schwab account. Jesus and your business adventures. Jesus and your uh, 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 extra income. Today is about Jesus and money. Now, for the remainder of our time, what I want to do is I want to zoom out and I want to answer two big questions from the scriptures. Number one, why should we practice generosity? So why from the scriptures should we practice generosity? Why was this so core to the church's life in Acts chapter two and why should it be core to our life? And number two, how should we practice generosity? So first, why should we practice generosity? Why has financial generosity always been a marker of the people of God and why should it be a marker of our life? Well, in his book, The Treasure Principle, any Treasure Principle people out there? Randy Alcorn, Treasure Principle? Okay, good. I love it. Couple people. Everybody's with me. That's awesome. Um, he, Randy Alcorn does an incredible job answering this question of the why of pra uh, practicing generosity. And he gives what he calls six treasure principles that are, I think, one of the best summaries of the, of the Bible's teaching on the why behind generosity. Today, I want to give you four of these principles. Uh, I'm reserving the other two so that you read the book. And quite frankly, these are the best four. Okay, so here it is. Principle number one. Principle number one, when it comes to generosity, God owns everything. I am his money manager. This is the first thing. It's foundational to generosity. God owns everything. I am his money manager. This represents the crucial shift in relating to our money from owner to manager. From owner to manager. We do not own our money. God owns our money because everything belongs to God in the first place. This is foundational. Now, I'll give you a couple of scriptures on this. We'll, get, we'll put four of these scriptures up here on the screen. Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, but remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth. You're like, but I worked hard for it. It's like, but Deuteronomy 8.18, you know? Psalm 24.1, the earth and everything in it, that would include our cold, hard cash, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. Haggai 2.8, God says to his people, the silver and gold belong to me. They don't belong to you. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Some of you are like, yeah, but that's Old Testament. Can I get some New Testament? Well, here you go. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. You are not your own. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. This is the foundation of generosity. It's a shift from an owner mentality to a manager mentality. So here's how we typically think. We think, man, like, I work really hard for my money. Like, I work like, I don't know, it depends on who you are, but 50 hours a week for my money. That money's mine. I own it. And it's mine to do what I want with. But then we ask the Deuteronomy 8 question, who gave us the ability to work and who gave us the job itself? Well, it was our Heavenly Father. And principle number one is that God owns everything and I'm his money manager. It is not just 10% of my money that belongs to God. And we'll talk about the tithe here in a little bit. 
It's not just 10% of my money that belongs to God. 100% of my money belongs to God. God owns everything. I'm his money manager. Uh, there's a famous story about John Wesley. In fact, in my research this week, so I was coming, preparing to come teach you guys on uh, money and generosity. This story was almost everywhere, so I was like, hey, i got to include this. There's a story about John Wesley who started the Methodism movement, 1800s, and uh, uh, kind of like where he models the uh, manager mentality that I don't own anything, God owns everything, and I am just managing God's resources. Where this guy, uh, there's a sto- the story goes that the guy rides up really frantically on the horse to uh, John Wesley, and he says, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, I've got some terrible news. And John Wesley's like, yeah, excuse me, you know. Um, what, what's the deal? And he goes, Mr. Wesley, uh, your, your house is burnt down. And this is a true story. From, from what I can tell, this is a true story. John Wesley looks at the man and he, and he says, no, the Lord's house burned down. It's one less responsibility for me to manage. <laughs> and I, was, I read that story. I was like, are we sure this is true? But it's like, even if it's not true, it's a great little parable about what it looks like to, to, to think like a manager. This is it, the manager mentality. Everything belongs to God. I am just managing God's resources for God's purposes. 100% of my income, 100% of my bank account belongs to God. Principle number two is this, my heart always goes where I put God's money. My heart always goes where I put God's money. When it comes to our money, you need to know this. Jesus is not worried about your money. Okay? This is, this is crucial. When it comes to money, Jesus is not worried about your money. In fact, let's get even more plain with this. Jesus Christ does not need your money. Like, he, he can accomplish his purposes however he wants to accomplish his purposes. Though, one of the ways he does accomplish his purposes is through the generosity of his people. But... Technically speaking, he owns everything, like we just talked about this. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't care about your money. What he cares about is you. And what he really cares about is your heart. Because he's for your joy. He's for you. This is why he cares about your money, because he cares for you. Jesus says this wild thing, Matthew 6, 21. He says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words... Your interests will always be where you put your, let's just say, God's, not your, money. Your interests will always be where you put God's money. So we know this. We know this to be true. Let's just say you're like, oh, I got a little money. I want to I invest it. So I'm going to get on E-Trade and, you know, I'm going to buy a little Tesla stock. You know, I don't know if the, I'm going to buy the dip, you know. And I don't know, I don't know if Tesla stock's doing well. I didn't check it this morning, okay? And so I don't know if Tesla stock's doing well, but it's like, I'm going to buy the dip, you know, and get, get myself a little Tesla stock. What, what is necessarily going to happen over the next couple of weeks? You are going to give an inordinate amount of your time and attention to the Tesla stock on E-Trade. You go, how's my money doing? You need to know, this is Jesus' point, your heart always goes where you put God's money. In the same way, when you start to invest in the kingdom of God, your heart will grow for the kingdom of God. Your heart always goes where you put God's money. You can flip this on its head and it becomes more convicting. Here's what Jesus is saying in another way. Where your money goes is the true indicator of what you really love. So it's like Jesus makes this easy for us. Like we can say we love Jesus and we love his kingdom and we love his people, but all we have to do to really understand what we love is for me, you know, I got the Chase Sapphire Reserve. I just opened up my Chase account do my little login. Actually, it's just like a fingerprint login now, you know. Do my little fingerprint login, and I can see what I value and love. Principle number two, my heart always goes where I put God's money. Principle number three, this one's, the, this one's my favorite. I think it's, the most, uh, the, it's been the most convicting and helpful for me. Heaven, not earth, is my true home. Heaven, not earth, is my home. Jesus says this, Matthew 6, 19 and 20, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. The best way to remember this is the pithy little line, you never will see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, you know? It's like, you guys get that? You never will see a hearse pulling a U-Haul, you know? You can't take your stuff with you. You can't take your stuff with you, but, and this is the typical pastor thing, pastor thing to say, you can't take your stuff with you, but Jesus 
actually reorients and helps us understand something even more significant. Though you can't take your stuff with you, there is a way to send it on ahead. This is wild. Look at verse 20. He says this, but store up for yourselves. So you can be a little selfish here. I don't know. Jesus is saying, I don't know. You can store up stuff for yourself in heaven. And the question we should be asking is like, okay, well, how do I do that? How do I store up stuff for, my, uh, for myself in heaven? Well, the answer is by investing in the kingdom of God. By investing in the kingdom of God. A.W. Tozer clarifies this. He says this, As base a thing as money often is, it yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. Wow. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men and women to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Holy smokes. Holy smokes. So what this is, is this is Jesus being an incredible investment advisor. You know, it's like anytime I've sat down with an investment advisor, they're like, play the long game. And Jesus is going, play the long game, but longer, (laughs) you know, but longer. It's like Jesus and Warren Buffett are on the same page, but... Jesus has a longer trajectory on the long-term investment portfolio. You know what I'm saying? He's saying, anytime, anytime you lift up your eyes and you play the long game with your investments, anytime you invest in the expansion and advancement of the kingdom of God, what do we mean by that? Anytime you invest in the alleviation of spiritual and physical poverty and pain, you are storing up an eternal investment portfolio. This is what you're doing. So you can think about it this way. It's like most people, you know, you think about like spending all your money in this life. Jesus is saying, don't spend all your money in this life. Send it on ahead. Send it on ahead. Spending all your money in this life, if I could give you a little parable or a way to think about it, would be like buying like restoration hardware furniture for a weekend at the Motel 8. It's like just not a good idea. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. Um, And finally, principle number four, heaven, not earth is my home, number three. Principle number four, giving is the only antidote to materialism. Here's the fourth reason. Here's the fourth why. Because giving, being generous, is the only antidote to materialism. Probably the most famous passage in the Bible on money is the story of the rich young ruler, right? It's like, this this is the passage that most of us think of whenever we think of the Bible and money. In Mark chapter 10, a rich man comes to Jesus and asks, what does it take for me to inherit eternal life. Uh, And Jesus responds very shockingly, um, here's all it takes. Why don't you go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor? And then you can have eternal life. And quite honestly, this, this passage has always been really convicting for me and terrified me at the same time. You know, it's like, okay, well, does that mean I have to sell everything to get to the kingdom of God? Well, the answer to that is no, not necessarily. What happens in this story is that Jesus sees that for this man, and we have to say for some of us, money and possessions had replaced God. They were his little G God. He found his joy in his money, his purpose in his money, his security in his money. He loved his money and the promise of his money more than he loved anything else in life. This was why Money was the one thing Jesus told him to remove from his life because money was his true little G God. And Jesus looked into his heart and saw this. This is why Jesus says this in Matthew 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. This man was trying to serve two masters. How do I serve my money and get eternal life? No one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. And Jesus sums it up this way. You cannot serve both God and money. So let me just ask you a question. Are you serving money? Or is money serving you and God's purposes in your life? That order is really, really important. Is money your master? What's fascinating here in Matthew, 20, uh, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, let's go back to that verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, um, is this, this word that's translated money right here in the original language, it's the word mammon. And this is the word Jesus uses. And mammon, if you listen, uh, if you listen to scholars talk about uh, mammon, 
they talk about it as a demonic spiritual stronghold, economic stronghold that binds people down so that they cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's like, are you bound by the demonic economic stronghold called mammon? You cannot serve two masters. So when we give our money away, what we are practically doing is we are loosening its power over us. When we practice generosity, it's a way of saying, I practically love and trust God more than my mammon. This God will not defeat me. And so I'm going to give it away. I'm going to give it away. First Timothy, uh, we'll go straight to First Timothy if you're, uh, for the slide guy. First Timothy chapter, uh, chapter 6 verse 10 says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The reason Jesus talks so much about money is because he doesn't want you to pierce yourself with many griefs. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. So why should we practice generosity? Well, here's a little summary, and then we'll go to more practical things. God owns everything. My heart always goes where I put God's money. Heaven, not earth, is my home, and giving is the only antidote to materialism. These are central to Jesus' teaching on money, and it's no wonder that after hearing Jesus teach so much of this, these very first Christians were like, hey, you know what we got to do? One of the core markers of our lives has to be financial generosity. But this then leads to the questions like, okay, I get it. Generosity is really important uh, whenever it comes to the teachings of Jesus. But it, it leaves the question hanging out there of like, man, how should we practice generosity? It's how should we practice generosity? And the answer to that is, well, it's complicated. <laughs> it's very complicated. It's one of the more complicated questions to answer when it comes to the Bible because to practice biblical generosity, you have to live in the tension of a number of things that the Bible says about money and to resolve this tension would be to mislive when it comes to our money. So what I want to do here is I want to give you what one pastor, J.D. Greer, calls the generosity matrix. And these are six things that you need to use as filters as you think about your own financial money management and you think about practicing your own generosity, using these as a filter. Six things that the Bible teaches us about money and generosity. Number one, when it comes to our giving and how we practice generosity, we need to understand that Jesus' generosity is the model of our own. Jesus' generosity is the model of our own. This answers the question, how much do I give? And the answer to how much do I give is that Jesus' generosity is the model of our own. Paul tells the church in Corinth that when it comes to their generosity, they should think about how much Jesus has given for them and respond accordingly. And you're like, he gave everything. Yeah, he did. Second Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, the church, says this to the church in Corinth. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Okay, now use that as the model for your own. So when it comes to how much we should give, people often talk about the tithe, right? And the tithe, if you're unfamiliar with the tithe, it comes from Leviticus 27 in the Old Testament under the law, where God required the people of God to give back to him one-tenth of everything that they took in, right? And so it's like, you know, if you, if you apply the tithe today, it's like if you make $1,000 in a month, you're going to tithe $100. If you make $10,000 a month, you're going to tithe $1,000 a month. If you make $100,000 a month, you're going to tithe $10,000 a month. This is the principle of the tithe. But what tricky people will often do with the tithe, especially when they want to sneak out from practicing, out from under practicing generosity, is they will say, well, do you know that the word tithe is not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament? And they go, see, I don't have to tithe. See, I don't have to tithe. And that's true. The word tithe is not mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. But what is assumed in the New Testament is that grace would be a greater motivator for giving than law. Oh, I heard the moan. Oh. So what this means is that for Christians in the New Testament, 10% becomes the floor of our giving, not the ceiling. Oh no. Oh no. And 
Jesus' generosity is the model of our own. And what did Jesus give? Jesus gave everything. So what does it mean, really practically, that Jesus' generosity should be the model of our own? Well, on a really practical level, it means that our generosity should be sacrificial. That it should cost us something. C.S. Lewis, for those of you that are defensive, I'll just give you a little Lewis. Here it is. C.S. Lewis says this. This is, this is a haymaker of a quote, so brace yourself, okay? He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Let me read that final line one more time. This was really convicting to me this week. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. I want to build the patio. I'm not going to build the patio because I see needs. I want the upgrade to the 2023 F-150. I'm not going to get the F-150 right now because there's people in need. Jesus' generosity is the model of our own. But, and you're going to start to see these things really contradict each other. They require wisdom. That's where we'll land the plane. Two, God gives us richly all things to enjoy. In fact, he's glorified when we enjoy them. So Jesus' generosity should be the model of our own, but I told you these things are all going to be in tension with each other. God gives us richly all things to enjoy. In fact, he's glorified when we enjoy them. Uh, Paul gives these instructions in 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, here's the key line, who, what does God do? Richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Huh. Some of you are like, oh, thank God for that verse. You know? You know, and it's like, yeah, like you should feel somewhat thankful for this verse, right? It's clear in the Bible that God is glorified when his children enjoy good gifts that he gives. What's interesting about Jesus is that, yes, he was poor, but he also lived out of abundance and he enjoyed life. We know this because his critics accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard. So Jesus, like, he was over there eating the filet mignon and like a lot of it. Otherwise, he was over there drinking the good wine that was probably expensive. He was, a, he was accused. He wasn't a glutton and a drunkard, but he was accused of being one. One of the core realities for the people of God all the way through the scriptures is that God commanded his people to slay the fattened calf and throw a big old party because he is good and celebrate his goodness. In John 2, the wedding runs out at the wedding in Cana. Uh, the wedding runs out of wine, and Jesus doesn't say, You shouldn't have been enjoying wine, uh, you, you gluttons. That wine's expensive. You know that that could have gone to the poor. What does he do? He makes more wine. You think about the woman. This is really convicting. The woman who breaks an expensive jar of perfume and anoints Jesus for burial. And one of his disciples goes, that could have been given to the poor. It's like that person, you know? It's like there's always that person around. And, 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 and he goes, you have no idea what you're talking about. So we got to balance these things. We got to balance these things. We need to see that, according to the scriptures, a poverty gospel that says we must give away everything is an unbiblical gospel. So let's get practical. Should you buy a nicer home, a nicer car, a second home? Should you, should you book the nicer place for vacation? Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes you should. But certainly not all the time. Because, number three is this, God does give us excess so that we can share it with others. You see the ping pong. This is Acts 2. Our passage, we're studying that they were willing out of their excess to depart with things so that other people could be cared for. And we need to be ready to do the same. Same thing happens in Acts chapter 4. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8, 14 and 15. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need. So I believe that there are people in this room right now that have a surplus and there are people that have need. If you have need, we need to know your needs so that out of the surplus, we can meet your need. 
This is how the church should work. Your surplus is for the need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. So if you have excess, you should be ready to share. Share it in the context of the local church and as you see need. And I just, there's a, there's a question here that this kind of, this begs is, are you living in such a way that you have excess to share? Or are you living at the limits of your income? Number four, so God gives us excess so that we can share it with others. But number four, it is also wise to build wealth. It's also wise to build wealth. The scriptures are very clear on this. It's wise to plan for the financial future. College savings accounts for your kids, emergency funds, savings for retirement, and even blessing your children and, their ch- their, and your children's children with an inheritance is good in God's eyes. This is all over the book of Proverbs. I'll give you a few Proverbs. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10 says this, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. Then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with new wine. God doesn't then follow up in verse 11 and say, and it's bad when the, when the vats are full of wine. He says, this is, this is the principle, you know? Proverbs 14, 24 says, The crown of the wise is their wealth. You will never meet a wealthy person that's managed their finances well who is foolish. It's a mark of wisdom when you have money to give away. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his grandchildren. It's like you think about leaving an inheritance to your grandchildren and you think, well, that's a wad of cash. Like it is not a small, it's not a small amount of money that you could leave to, that you could skip a generation and leave to your grandchildren. It is wise to build wealth. Now, if this, it's wise to build wealth, isn't held in tension with the others, you will start to hoard wealth for security instead of building wealth for kingdom purposes. And there's a massive difference between those two things. You will start to, let me repeat that, hoard wealth for security instead of build wealth for kingdom purposes. And some of those kingdom purposes are to care for your family. It's not just to give it all away, but some of those kingdom purposes that God's given you are the responsibilities right in front of you. Number five, not everything in the kingdom of God has your name on it. I'm just giving you these more filters for you to apply as you think about your own financial reality. Not everything in the kingdom of God has your name on it. There will always be more money to give because there will always be more needs to meet. No one in this room has enough money to solve all of the problems. You just don't. And we have to understand that we don't have to give to every single need. We literally can't. So we have to choose. So you need to choose to invest in the most strategic kingdom, kingdom activities where your kingdom money, where your kingdom generosity will go the furthest. So when it comes to in, uh, where to invest our kingdom money, New Testament Christians invested it primarily, in, though not exclusively, in and through their local church communities. This is what we see in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and 2 Corinthians. And this feels a little self-serving. I get it. It's like I'm one of the pastors and I'm saying you should invest in the, in the church. And I'm like, well, it's, it's in the New Testament. I'm sorry. You know, this is it. It feels a little self-serving, but we need to also realize that the local church is the bride of Christ. That the local church is God's plan A for advancing his redemptive kingdom mission in the world. And there is really no plan B. So let me just be plain. If you are a Christian, you should make the local church your favorite charity. You should. And then after that, like, give to your other passions. That's fine. I'm not saying don't give other places. But like, as a Christian, invest in the bride of Christ. And what we do is we do our best to steward your resources toward the best, most effective kingdom initiatives in the world. It's like part of the job of a pastor is to be a kingdom fund manager, to invest the resources of God's people in the most effective, in the most effective kingdom, kingdom purposes in the world. And finally, number six is this, always listen to the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Always listen to the Holy Spirit. What you're seeing is that there is no rule on generosity. So many of us are like, man, like, give me the rule. Give me the rule, man. Like, I want the rule. Just tell me a percentage. And it's like the reality is, because of Jesus, we are under grace, not under law. There is no rule. It must be sacrificial, but you can enjoy things. But if there are people in need and you have excess, you should meet their needs. But you can also build wealth because that can glorify God. And you don't have to give to every need. So in this gray, what I'm saying is you and I need the help of the Holy Spirit of God to give us wisdom. 
Because these are hard decisions, guys. And decisions we cannot make in the flesh. We need wisdom from heaven. And there's a promise in the book of James that says, if anyone lacks wisdom and they ask, it will be given to them. So one of my hopes, really practically, is that if you consider your part, yourself a part of the Heights, the Heights Church family, is that you would go home and at some point this week, you would sit down at the kitchen table, if you're single by yourself, if you're married with your spouse, and you would spread out your finances before God and say, God, give us wisdom. Would you give us wisdom? And use the generosity matrix to like make some new Bible-informed financial decisions. The Bible, what the Bible does is it focuses on our heart and its posture toward God and money, not rules on the amount of money that we should give. So what I want to do here is I want to land the plane, and we can go ahead, and if you're in the band, you can go ahead and come up, and I want to land the plane by giving you two practical tips, uh, and then we will talk about Jesus, and we'll end by taking communion and celebrating the generosity of God toward us. Two uh, practical tips. Tip number one is adopt a countercultural financial strategy. Adopt a countercultural financial strategy. Um, the church in Acts 2, what they do is they live completely counterculturally when it comes to their money. And we should do the same. So let's go ahead and put this next slide up here. If you're on the band, if you could watch the black cord, that'd be awesome. Um, it, it, what we see here is we should live really counterculturally. We should live really counterculturally. And here's the order of how our culture, our, our, the people in our cultural moment manage their money. They live, then they save, then they give. So they live it up. They get something, you know, from... They get something from their work, you know, their, 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 you know, their draft into their bank account, and then they live, and then they save a little bit, and then they give uh, out, out of whatever is left. So live, save, give. But here's the order of the people of the kingdom of God. We give first. We give our first. We give our best. Then we save, and then we live off the rest. Give, save, live. Adopt a countercultural financial strategy. So the first so the first question I would ask you is this, do you have a financial strategy? This is really important. Do you have a financial strategy? And the second question is this, is it a countercultural financial strategy where you give, then you save, and then you live? Tip number 2, and then we'll land the plane is this, make it a point to move up the generosity ladder. Make it a point to move up the generosity ladder. Some of you have been sitting there and you've been listening to this teaching and you've just been completely overwhelmed because you've never given anything before. And you're like overwhelmed with guilt and you're like, oh my gosh, like a, you're saying 10% is the floor and you're like, if I gave away 10%, I couldn't make rent next month and all of that. But here's, here, here would be my encouragement to you. Move up the generosity ladder. And what I mean by that is start somewhere. Start somewhere. Here's your paradigm for the day. I try to bring you a paradigm every week. And this is called, this is a paradigm called the generosity ladder. And what I would encourage you to do is take a picture of it from on one of these big screens and spend a little time with it later. Some of you need to start by being an initial giver. And this is someone who has never given anything or maybe just gives kind of randomly and occasionally. And you are like, man, I want to give for the very first time. Some of you have given a little bit before and you want to step up the ladder and be a consistent giver. This is someone who gives a predetermined amount or percentage six or more times a year. We're just talking about going, man, we want to practice generosity. Some of you have given consistently and you want to move up to being an intentional giver. Intentional givers give a percentage of their income on a monthly basis. And this is where people are moving toward that tithe. It's like, man, I want the tithe to be the floor. It's, a, you know, it's not the ceiling, but it's the floor. And I want to work towards it. And you're just kind of stepping your way up, going, man, there's a step for everybody to take in this. Some of us have been intentionally giving for a long time. You're like, I've, I, give 10, I give my 10%. I have been for years. I'm trying to manage the resources well. And you need to take a step to be an abundant giver. Abundant givers are less concerned about the 10 to 15% they give and more concerned about how they can be more generous. They're like, man, I... You know, I don't know, like I, I've been given the 10% forever and I'm just going to take another step and practice generosity. I'm going to battle against materialism in my life. I'm going to live into these teachings of Jesus. And some of you have the capacity to be a legacy giver. This is someone who is looking to make a long-term impact in the kingdom of God. They make decisions concerning their business and their investment portfolios and their lifestyle. They choose a standard to live at for the rest of their life and then they go, I'm going to save and invest and give away everything else so that they can be more generous. And the point of this is to kind of identify where you're at and just say, man, I want to take a next step. We've understood the why behind, the genero behind biblical generosity, the how. 
understanding that this is a core marker of the church in Acts chapter 2. But the main reason the people of God are generous is because we serve a generous God. A God who, when, when, when we were at our lowest, when we were at our poorest, spiritually speaking, held nothing back from us, but gave us his very best. He gave us his son. And this is Jesus Christ who came and he did all of the work in our place so that we could be, be brought back into life with God. Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve on the cross. God gave us everything. He gave us the life of his son and he was raised from the dead. And it's his model of generosity, his standard of generosity that motivates our generosity. Let me pray for us and then we're gonna talk about how to respond. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your generosity toward us. And I just wanna invite you through the Holy Spirit to come and to show us the next steps that you want us to take in order to move toward financial generosity. God, we've been saying this over these past few weeks that if we want the power of the New Testament church, we have to devote ourselves to the practices of the New Testament church. And practice number six is financial generosity. And so God, would you show us the next step? God, I pray that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray for my brothers and sisters who are here who are experiencing overwhelming guilt because of the way that they've managed their money, that they would hear the gospel, that they are not saved by their money management, but by faith in Jesus Christ's work alone. And that out of that, out of that, that they would see that there's grace but where we have been living out, for, out from under your design, we also want to come, we want to walk in repentance. We want to hear you, we want to trust you, and we want to obey you. And so come Holy Spirit, show us how to practice generosity. Show us the next step. May we be a generous people and a generous church so that your kingdom can march forward in our city, in our nation, in our world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' powerful